trying to follow that is like I need to have the guy say, Elvis has left the building. Uh, Warren Risby and I were talking one day, and he said, uh, this lady came up to a pastor who was leaving, and she was just crying and just said, oh, I just cannot believe you're leaving. I just can't believe you're not going to be our pastor anymore. And the pastor put his hand on her shoulder and said, oh, dear lady, trust me, you'll get a better one the next time. And she said, that's what they told us the last time. It has been a privilege and a joy to spend almost half of our lives here and uh, to pastor in one place, to raise our kids here and to uh, just see the fruit of what God has done and to look out and, and, and see people that, uh, I was telling somebody the other day, I said, it is so surreal for me to see babies that I dedicated having babies and, and seeing third generation of people in the life of this church. I mean, uh, that is one of the true blessings of, of being the pastor of this church. Uh, I get one more shot at Durvin and Ross. Uh, they're here tonight. I get one more shot at them. Uh, but uh, I, I look back with great love and fondness on the nights that we ordained these guys and and God called them to ministry and I tell you there's no greater joy for a pastor or a youth pastor than to see young men and women follow God's call and obey God's call and do what God has told them to do and they step out in faith and uh, do the work that God has set aside for them and I'm, I'm grateful uh, guys for you being here and uh, being a part of this service. And man, your kids have grown so much. What happened? What are you feeding them? I mean, what is going on here? We need to have a meeting at Dairy Queen or something after church and find out what's going on. Ryan Rice, where's Ryan Rice? I saw him. Where's Ryan? Ryan? It blew me away when you showed up this morning. Uh, it's a long way from New Orleans, but uh, I want to tell you, one of the great churches that we'd, we've been able to partner with in planning is uh, the church in Algiers, where Ryan pastors, pastored a church, merged with a predominantly Caucasian church, and he's the pastor. And uh, what God has done with Ryan and the one thing I, I, I've learned about Ryan in watching him is uh, he is a learner. I mean, he just, every time I'm looking around, he's somewhere and he's, he's trying to learn from somebody. Uh, Haley will tell me, you know, we were at a conference at NAM and, Ryan, and Ryan's there uh, just trying to learn. Ryan, I, I'm very proud of what you do in New Orleans and uh, proud of your the way God's using you and the way God's going to use you. And uh, it, it was a good day when we partnered with your church. And for some of our children to go and do mission trips there and uh, to see ministry in real time, 
has been an encouragement to me. Their lives will forever be touched by that. Um, I, I want to say for the record, I came back with every person I left to go to Israel with. <laughs> Everybody that got on the plane with me got off the plane with me. I just, I just want to say for the record that nobody got arrested. A couple of them came close, uh, but uh, nobody got arrested or uh, absconded or you know, a couple of them disappeared at times and we had to go find them, but um, there's so much about uh, being the pastor that I will miss and uh, I will miss Sunday nights as much as anything. Uh, just our fellowship on Sunday nights. I said this last week. I'm going to repeat it again because it's really the last time you're going to hear me say it. Uh, this church moves forward on Sunday nights. Uh, everything we've done has happened in the, the uh, unction and life and energy and vision and prayers that have taken place in this, in this house on Sunday nights. Uh, Seth was in my office uh, this week, and I gave him something. Of course, you know, Seth wasn't even born, I don't think, when I came here. Uh, and he was in my office this week, and I said, do you have a copy of this white Baptist hymnal? He said, no, I don't. And so I opened it up, and I showed it to him, and I said, now look. I said, this was the hymnal that was in the old church. We don't have hymn racks in, in this book. In, in this building, but this was the, uh, the last service in the old building, which was also the first service in this building. Some of you were here and remember that. We rushed through a service in the old building, and then the choir left, and we walked in and had our worship service. Our worship service B in here was the first service was Sunday night, because I wanted the Sunday night crowd to have a unique experience and so uh, after I got $50 out of Seth I gave him the hymnal and uh, uh, well that's a uh, thank you thank you for loving us thank you for praying for us thank you for standing with us thank you for giving us the benefit of the doubt thank you for forgiving us thank you for forgiving me Terry hadn't done anything wrong yet but uh uh, thank you for forgiving me when I just did really dumb stuff and uh, you just showed grace and mercy and all of that and uh, I am eternally grateful for that. Well, I want to ask you to turn to John chapter 14. This will be a familiar passage to you and some of this will be familiar to you from a few years back. Not all of it, but parts of it as we talk about positioning ourselves for a new dimension of faith. John 14, verses 12 through 14. I began to ask the Lord while I was in the mountains, uh, what should my last message be about? And I realized that it needed to be about what I had discovered in 1975. In a Bible conference at Redbridge Baptist Church, in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Terry and I had moved there with a total of $400 in our pocket and a Chevy Vega. Talk about faith. 
I just, you know, talk faith. Make a drive from Mississippi to Missouri in a Vega uh, where the engine falls out of it. But uh, we went to a Bible conference because a friend of mine, Tony Dyer, was uh, the youth minister there. And he invited us over. And that was, it was at that meeting, which actually started the week after Thanksgiving. It was a 1st of December meeting. Kind of interesting that the first time that uh, I saw Jack Taylor, Ron Dunn, and Bertha Smith uh, was at that Bible conference. In fact, I found the notes from Bertha Smith's, uh, we were not allowed to call it a message, but uh, if you heard Bertha Smith and you said she wasn't preaching, she'd have just ripped your head off. But uh, uh, one of the strongest missionaries I think Southern Baptists have ever had. And um, I learned in that week what the sufficiency of Christ was about. I'm still learning it. That was 1974. We're in 2021, and I'm still trying to learn the truths that we're going to talk about tonight. I'm still trying to apply them. Sometimes I know them more up here than I know them in my life and actions, but I'm still trying to apply them at what God has tried to drill in me. I want to one more time take you to and say, this is your way forward. This is how you move forward by faith. Uh, to have a great future, you need three things. You need an unwavering commitment to prayer and dependency of the Holy Spirit. You need an unwavering commitment to prayer and dependency on the Holy Spirit. This cannot be well, if we really get desperate, we'll start praying. And if we really get desperate, we'll ask the Holy Spirit to help us. You need an unwavering commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture. God has spoken. He has not stuttered. The promises of God are yes and amen. And you need an unwavering commitment to unity. Prayer, Scripture, unity is the way forward. Now, we all know believers in churches that don't handle transitions well. Uh, they stumble, they get off track, they get out of their lane, and a lot of churches don't handle transitions well. They, they begin to get inward focus, they begin to live by fear and speculation and impatience, but I want to remind you what uh, my pastor Tom Elliff says. God is running this show. Michael Katz not running this show. God's running this show. And he always has. I mean, it, it may say pastor on my door, but I want to tell you something. Every time I thought I was running the show, I messed up. God is the one running this show. And he will run this show tomorrow and the next day. I thought this week about when Tom didn't show up for a refresh conference. By the way, I still haven't forgiven him for that. <clears throat> I don't have a root of bitterness, but I haven't forgiven him for it. But he, he said, you know, call me on Friday. He said, man, the car's packed. You know, we, we got everybody in the car. Everything's ready. We're ready to go. On Friday night, I said, Tom, that's great. He's going to drive halfway from Oklahoma City and get in the rest of the way on Saturday. Saturday morning at 7 o'clock, he calls me and says, Michael, I'm not coming. And I said, I I'm sorry. 
is this a joke? He said, no. He said, the Lord woke me up at 3 o'clock this morning and said, you don't need to come. And I said, well, what else did the Lord say to you? <laughs> he, he, said, he said, you need to tell Michael that his trust may be in the Lord. And, and I can tell you that, that me and Jesus had a quick, quick meeting that morning because I didn't have anybody to preach that Sunday morning. And uh, by about 2 o'clock that afternoon, I called Tom and I said, I know why you're not coming because I, I know what God wants me to say. And I didn't plan to say it, but I just went down to my study and I said, Lord, you're going to have to help me. And the Lord said that your trust may be in the Lord. My prayer is that your trust will be in the Lord. We don't know what the future holds for us uh, with our treatments. Uh, the doctors say that uh, the current treatments we're on work between one and three years, sometimes less, sometimes a little more. But here's what I know the great fighter Joe Lewis said. You only live once, but if you do it right, once is enough. You only get one shot. Life's not a dress rehearsal. We don't get do-overs. If you do it right, once is enough. I, I believe that there are unparalleled opportunities for this church. I don't believe that any of this has caught God by surprise. I don't believe that any of this is some twist of fate. I believe it's the Lord's way of saying, Michael, it's time to step aside because there's new opportunities. There's a new pastor. There's a new vision. I don't have the vision for 2030. I don't have the vision for 2025. But somebody does. And God's going to bring them here. And God's going to use them. And you're going to love them. And you're going to love them. And they're going to do great things in this church. They will be different. I hope so. I hope so. Uh, Maybe they won't have gray hair. I've been thinking about growing a mullet. Uh, you know, getting a job as a greeter at Dollywood. Maybe losing most of my front teeth and just kind of... Well, that's enough. <laughs> Let's look at the first thing. We must see the future is now. We need to acknowledge the difficulties, but immediately turn those into prayer. Acknowledge the difficulties, but immediately turn those into prayer. Transitions are hard. At best, they are hard. Doesn't matter what it is. In a, in a company, in a family, uh, moving your kids off to college, transitions are hard. And they require adjustment, and they re require faith, and sometimes they bring tears. The early church didn't operate out of fear. They operated out of boldness because they operated on promises. Because they knew the future was now. It wasn't somewhere out there a long way away. They were living in the ultimate paradigm shift. I mean, we talk about paradigm shifts in our culture, and, you know, uh, we talk about, well, you know, the... These people live before the day of the internet and cell phones and all this kind of stuff. There's never been a paradigm shift 
like God in flesh leaving the earth and the gap between that and the Holy Spirit coming. I mean, you want to talk about a change in direction and in ministry and in life. John 14, Jesus is preparing them for the fact that he's going to leave. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. You know, you kind of, you just, when you get to heaven, you just kind of want to say, Thomas, were you paying any attention at all? I mean, did you sleep through class or what was going on? You see, Thomas was the guy that lived by saying, seeing is believing. If I see it, I'll believe it, which means he had a problem walking by faith. That's why we called him Doubting Thomas. And yet, most people believe that Thomas is the one that went all the way to India and established the gospel in India. And there are many, many thousands of people with the name of Thomas in India that give evidence that Thomas went to India and gave his life for the gospel. Philip spoke up and said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Philip was basically saying, I've seen it. <laughs> but I don't believe it. I mean, I've seen you and I've heard you, but I'm really not sure I believe it. They just wanted God to write something in the sky for them. Just give me a sign. John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And the words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Jesus was saying that every miracle, every word that came out of his mouth, every deed that was done was a representation of revealing the Father. In that moment, Jesus revealed the key to all he expects of us. Everything he wants of us, he wants us to reveal to this world the Father, the love of the Father. And so I just want to remind you tonight of things you already know. Now you say, well, if we already know them, why would you have to preach and why would we have to come back? We could have just come this morning and eating out tonight. Well, it's kind of like when your kids leave the house. Now remember, call me when you get there. I know, I know. And now I've got this Life 360, and I can, even in their 30s, I can see where Aaron and Haley are. <laughs> it's glorious. Of course, they can see where I am, too, so that's, <laughs> you know, what, the, what mine says is, at home, <laughs> at home. <laughs> they also will know when I go to Pancake Pantry. So, so, Jesus promised that he would not leave us helpless orphans in John 14, 8, Williams' translation. The disciples blew it when he was present. Remember, they couldn't cast out the demon when he and Peter, James, and John came off the mountain. How in the world were they going to act when he was gone? But Jesus reveals the secret to his power. The secret to his power would be the secret to their power. Jesus says to them in John 14, on the last day of his life on earth, I am not the source of my own sufficiency. 
I do what the Father says that I'm supposed to do. I communicate with the Father. The Father shows me. The Father tells me. I listen to the Father. And the Father and I are in one beat, one heartbeat. And I only do what the Father tells me to do. I am the Father's representative in the flesh on this earth. I've not spoken of my own authority. The authority I speak in is the authority of the Father. He gave me a command of what I should say, and I say it. So here's the deal with Jesus. Jesus is saying to the disciples, my physical presence is not what you need. What you need is an awareness of the Father. Because when I'm physically absent... You're going to do greater things. Now, you just imagine most of the disciples were teenagers. Just imagine what they thought. What are we going to do when Jesus is not here? I mean, you put yourself in their shoes. They've left their jobs. They've left their family businesses. Uh, they've left their tax collecting business. They've, they've left all to follow him. They've gone to Jerusalem. Jesus is about to be crucified and he says to them, I'm going away. I'm leaving. Can you imagine just the conversations that were going on in their heads about what do we do? How do we respond? How do we handle this? And Jesus reminds them that the secret is the Father working through the Son. You know what the secret of Sherwood is? The Father working through the Spirit in His body called the church. That's the secret. Secondly, what we need is power. John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So here's a promise and a possibility of greater works. I don't buy the lie that churches have to go backwards in transitions. Most do. I don't think they have to. I just don't believe they have to. Here's why they do. If a church is centered on a personality, it will stumble. If a church is centered on the person of Jesus Christ, it will continue to move forward in power. Because the power is not in the personality. The power is in the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and collectively uses us to do greater works for God. Look at what Jesus promised them. He, he said his followers will equal his works and they will exceed his works. And that happened at Pentecost. I mean, they prayed for 10 days, Peter preached for 10 minutes, and 3,000 people were saved. We pray for 10 minutes and preach for three days, and nobody gets saved. The power is in the Holy Spirit, in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's where we exceed the works of Jesus. His ministry was localized. He never traveled that far from home. And yet, when the disciples began to spread out, the gospel went 
to the whole world. This is not an overstatement. It's a revelation of spiritual possibilities in the physical realm. We have seen that in this church. We've seen it in this church. And most people would immediately say, well, it's in the movies. It is, but it, it goes beyond that. It, it, it's where you work. It's what you do. It's work in the spiritual realm, in the physical realm, spiritual work being done. You introducing somebody to Christ. You bringing somebody to church with you. While we were singing Jesus, Hope of the World, that song always, always makes me weep because I remember us singing it and I remember the International Mission Board putting that video together, the only music video the IMB has ever done. Uh, and I remember them putting that together and it was, the, it was used in every church in Southern Baptist Life, 40,000 churches one year, tied to this church for our missionaries. And I remember doing four refresh conferences there. And some of you went on those refresh conferences and sitting in a room with people who were stateside workers who every day were orchestrating and moving and helping missionaries in over 140 countries around the world, many of them in nations that we cannot name, many of them in dangerous situations where their lives are on the line every day. And here are the people who sit in offices that go unnamed, but they are the voices behind the heroes that we applaud when they come home on furlough. They're the ones that answer the phone when somebody has to get out quickly. They're the ones who help a family that's got to get back because of a medical emergency. And I, I will never forget doing those conferences. It's just, it's just our, our praise team and, and some of our volunteers and, and me and Ken Jenkins. And I, and I said to, to Tom Elliff, I said, Tom, no, you're going to speak, aren't you? He said, no. He said, I'm going to let you guys preach, and I'm going to sit on the front row. And uh, normally their staff retreats were go in a room and plan and strategize. He said, we're going to come, and they're being paid to come to refresh, and they're going to sit in this room, and they're going to hear how to live the Christ life. And those times were glorious. When I look back on it, I still get messages from people in that room who thank us for coming, thank you, really, for allowing us to go, to invest in people that you won't meet until eternity. For the hundreds of thousands of baptisms that come through our missions efforts around the world, we have a part in that. We have a part in that. For the churches that we have planted and every person that's baptized and every church has planted. I look at the diversity of our church plants. If we just sat here in our holy huddle, we would never truly know what greater works look like. If we just played it safe, kept all our money here, kept all our cards here and never got out of the box, we would never know the joy of seeing what God is doing from Canada to Puerto Rico, from Washington to New York,
to New Orleans. We wouldn't know it. God has allowed us as a church to do greater works. And it's been glorious, glorious to watch it. I mean, you look at the earthly ministry of Jesus. I mean, he's healing, he's raising the dead, he's feeding the 5,000, he's casting out demons. It's hard to think we can top that. But when you go to the book of Acts and you go to the epistles, there's little about miracles and healings. It's about church planning. It's about going into pagan areas, going into darkness and putting light in places of darkness. And by the time Paul was dead and John was dead, the gospel had been spread to every part of the known world in basically two generations. Churches full of the Holy Spirit spread the gospel. And they reached people for Christ and they invest in the spreading of the gospel. And here are the keys. I go to my father. Jesus had to leave physically. And the Spirit will come to dwell in us. The coming of the Spirit after the ascending of Jesus to the Father. Now we know in John 7 that Jesus cries out at the Feast of Tabernacles and says, if anybody's thirsty, let him come. Would you agree with me that we live in a world that's thirsty? I mean, we're in a thirsty world. They're, th- they're, they're going to all the wrong fountains to find satisfaction. They're drinking from broken cisterns is what Jeremiah says. And Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to me. Can I tell you something? America is a nation full of thirsty people drinking from the wrong fountains. Jesus said in John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The greater works depend on Jesus being away and the Spirit indwelling his people. John 16, 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. Can I tell you something? God will always use a church that lets that church glorify Jesus. It's not about glorifying us. It's about glorifying Jesus. Long as you glorify Jesus, the Spirit will work. Jesus said, I've represented the Father. The Spirit's going to represent me and of utmost importance that we position ourselves to be used of God for the glory of the Father. Here's what's important. Truth is not fluid. It is chiseled in the scriptures by the hand of God. Truth is not, well, the Bible said this until 2021, and really we live in a different time. God said this, but... Things have changed. Folks, you want to see a church die? Walk away from the Bible. Walk away from the Bible. 
Jesus said that we're to worship him in spirit and in truth. We need the Holy Spirit and we need the truth. If we just have the spirit, we have wildfire. If we just have the truth, we have no fire. We just have dead orthodoxy. But when you put those two together, we've got everything God wants us to have. When Jesus walked the earth, his ministry was localized. The greater works were going to the Gentiles. One of my favorite stories in the scripture is John chapter 4, when Jesus said, I've got to go through Samaria. Now, these were considered by the Jews, the Samaritans were considered by the Jews half-breeds, mixed race. And they would go days out of the way to keep from going through Samaria. And Jesus said, I have to go through Samaria. And I'm sure the disciples were having their own discussions going, He's got to be kidding. Because this was early on in his ministry. And so they go into McDonald's to, you know, get a Happy Meal or whatever they go to do. And Jesus is sitting there and he meets a woman who's been married five times. And the man she's with is not even her husband. And the disciples come back and she runs into town and she goes in and she says to the people in the town, come meet the man who told me everything about my life. And Jesus stayed And do you realize the greatest evangelistic moment in the earthly ministry of Jesus happened among people that the Jews didn't want to talk to? You want Sherwood to be a great church? Look more like heaven. Socioeconomically, ethnically, look more like heaven. Love the people that other churches don't love. Serve the people that other people won't serve. Invest in people, pray for people, cry with people, lift up people that other people would just as soon sit in their holy huddles and not deal with them. He ascended, the Spirit descended. Martin Luther said, For Christ took but a little corner for himself to preach and to work miracles and but a little time, whereas the apostles and their followers have spread themselves through the whole world. Biblically, God's work has always been leading to a greater work. In every great move of God, there's always been a transition moment. Abraham had to get up and leave and go to a country where he didn't know where he was going. David had to pass the baton. Elijah had to pass the baton. Jesus passed the baton to the disciples. Paul passed the baton to Timothy. You look over and over and over again in Scripture, and you find that there are transition moments, but those transition moments do not have to lead to going backwards. They can lead to putting your foot on the pedal. The hatred of this world and the persecution of the church will not stop because we are moving toward the end of the age and the church needs to be better and brighter and stronger and more vocal than it has ever been. I am praying and believing God for greater works when the new pastor arrives. It was tough for the disciples. 
but they were empowered to do what God told them to do. You ever notice that every time it got tough, they just started praying? Have you ever noticed in the book of Acts that when it got tough and they were told not to do what they were doing, that they went together and prayed for more boldness? You know, that's why you know they weren't Baptists because they, you know, we would just go and say, I just hope they, they won't bother us anymore. We'll just shut up. Not those disciples. They got together and they counted it awesome that they could suffer for the name of Jesus. I think this is the last thing. I'm not sure, but uh, we find power in prayer and surrender. Greater works are in a prayer environment. As I've looked over the last few years, it's interesting that our last prayer conference, Bob Bakke was with us. And I love, I love Bob Bakke. I mean, I just... I just love it. He, I just, I just love to hear him talk. I mean, Bob Bakke can just be conversational, and I feel like heaven is thundering down on me. Repent, you sorry sinner. <laughs> but, but I remember that one of the things that Bob Bakke emphasized in the last prayer conference was learning to pray in agreement. And I think that is the key going forward, folks. Praying in agreement. Lord, not our will, your will be done. We sang it tonight. Let your kingdom come, your will be done. Don't tell God what he needs to do. You just say, Lord, we're available to do what you want us to do. It's the key to power. It's the key to revival. It's the key to unity. It's the key to future. And the future of Sherwood is built on what we do today and what we get up and do tomorrow. God is not asking us to do his work for him. He's asking us to surrender to him and let him do his work through us. And one day, I mean, the transition team's going to show up and say, uh, we found the new pastor. And we believe this is the will of God. I hope it's suddenly. That's a word I like in the Bible. Immediately. Suddenly. Immediately. Uh, that word is used at Pentecost. It's used at the conversion of Saul. It's used at the prison break of Peter. It's used at the prison break of Paul and Silas. By the way, if you find out in, I'm in prison, would you suddenly show up <laughs> and, uh, and, and bail me out? Here's the key. Greater works occur when we expect the unexpected. Greater works occur when we expect the unexpected. I love what Bill Stafford used to say, who's now in glory. Maybe today. But if not today, maybe tomorrow. Lord, would you send revival today? But if you don't do it today, would you send it tomorrow? Bob Newton said, live your life as an exclamation rather than an explanation. God moves when we give him time to work. John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, 
Alan Redpath said, never undertake more Christian work than can be covered by believing prayer. To fail here is to act not in faith, but in presumption. Now you know this, and uh, you've probably already marked this in your Bible, but six times in John 14 through 17, Jesus repeatedly says, if you ask, I will. John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name. 14, 14, if you ask anything in my name. 15, 16, whatever you ask of the Father in my name. John 16, 23, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. John 16, 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive. John 16, 26, in that day you will ask in my name. To ask in the name of Jesus is not just to tag a prayer with in Jesus' name, amen. It is to ask in the authority of, in harmony with, in sanction by Jesus. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, verse 13, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. I've told you that a few months ago uh, we met Kay Dunn Robinson and her husband Dan at a restaurant uh, coming through North Carolina, coming from the, the mountains and coming through North Carolina, and she gave me these two huge boxes of Ron's uh, manuscripts of all of his books with his final edits written in them and uh, gave me his handwritten sermon notes, some of them typed. Uh, and of course, we have the Ron Dunn uh, library here. And uh, I, I want to tell you, there's, there's some treasures in there. Some of you know Ron's message, Chained to the Chariot. Uh, he began writing that message on a napkin. Don't miss God in small things. Don't miss God in small things. And the key to the message of Chained to the Chariot is that you walk behind and you stay in step. And if Jesus is in charge, Every step you take is on conquered ground. Amen. Stephanie was scanning <clears throat> some of those messages the other day, and she brought me the pages from Ron's message on Romans 8:28. On all things that work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. That was the first message I ever heard Ron preach. I heard him preach it the week after Ronnie took his life. And those handwritten notes and the date where he preached it at Redbridge Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. When I heard Ron preach that message, I knew one thing. This man has something in God that I do not have. Because I could not be here a week later and preaching Romans 8.28. This man knows something about God that I don't know. And I vowed to myself, I'm going to get to know this man somehow. I'm going to get to know him. It, it took me 12 years for Ron and I to build a relationship because I was in one place, he was in another, and I would go hear him from time to time just like I did 
with Vance Havner, but I can tell you the key to every person that has blessed my life. They exhibited something in their lives that I didn't have or I had not experienced. And I needed it. And I wanted it. And every time I got to know them, it got down to a simple conversation over a cup of coffee, over a Coke, or over a hamburger of Michael. It's simply Jesus. You just have to trust Jesus with this. And then you can do greater works. I thought greater works were trying harder, doing more, turning over a new leaf, gritting my teeth, making a recommitment, uh, demanding more of myself and of everybody around me. But the reality is greater works are in surrender. I'm saying, I can't. Lord, you can. You know, it's the key to revival. Let me just read you an account, and then we're through. In the Korean revival of 1907, missionaries William Blair and Bruce Hunt said, we had reached a place where we dared not go forward without God's presence. Very earnestly, we poured out our hearts before him, searching our hearts and seeking to meet the conditions God heard us and gave us an earnest that week of what was to come. Before the meetings closed, the Spirit showed us plainly that the way of victory for us would be a way of confession of broken hearts and bitter tears. Jonathan Goforth said of them, they honored God and the Holy Spirit, and by six months of prayer, then he came as a flood. Pray with me if you would. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for this church family. Thank you for looking out across this room and seeing men and women that are living in other places now who, who have come back today that just, uh, just overwhelms me. Thank you for the work that's being done around this world. I thank you for the work that's being done because this church, these people, and some who have gone before us have paid a price, have sacrificed, have prayed, and have believed God for greater things and greater works. Lord, while others may have laughed at what a church in Albany might do, you did that which we cannot pat ourselves on the back for. You did that which can only be explained by the Holy Spirit moving in our midst. 
Lord, I pray that you would bless this church family with the peace of God and the God of peace. I thank you for those who stood by our side in those early days of ministry that are now in glory. I thank you for those who stand by our side today. I thank you for every prayer card that we've gotten, for every prayer that has been whispered to heaven. I thank you for our leadership. I thank you for our staff. Thank you for our transition team. I thank you for Jim standing shoulder to shoulder and helping for over 20 years us move this church in God's direction. Not our direction, but God's direction. I thank you for the men that I'll have lunch with tomorrow who serve on this ordained staff and for the countless memories that we have and the meals that we've shared and the laughter that we've shared sometimes at one another's expense. But I have to think that that's what it was like with the disciples. There was joy in the body. I thank you for the laughter I thank you for the tears. I thank you for the notes taken in Bibles. I thank you for the answered prayers of people who had given up. I thank you for the prodigals that have come home. I thank you for the marriages that have been restored. I thank you, Father, for the songs we've been able to sing, the songs that have been written in this church. But most of all, Father, I thank you that when you walk in this place, so often there's a sense of the abiding presence of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, whatever good has been done, whatever change has been done that brought glory to your name, we lay it at your feet and thank you for the privilege of being servants of a great king. In Jesus' name, amen.